and good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 5? Now, last time in our study in 1 Samuel, we studied chapter 4, where the Philistines and uh, Israel clashed in a battle. And at one point, Israel decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle to act as a kind of a good luck charm for them. And uh, the Philistines, when they heard the shout, because the Ark of the Covenant uh, came into the camp of Israel, the Israelis shouted so loud, the Philistines said, what is going on over there? It must be that they brought their gods, gods plural, Philistines didn't know God of Israel, that they brought their gods into the battle. Philistines fight like men because, boy, we got to really go for it. Well, they did, and they won, and they captured the Ark. And so they brought it back to the land of the Philistines. Now, in chapter 5, we're going to learn what God did to the Philistines. All right, And in fact, there are some very important lessons about the way God, his character, and the way he dealt with these folks. In fact, this chapter, I've divided into three main sections. That God is exclusive. Number two, that God is intolerant. And number three, that God is judicial. Now, I have purposely chosen those terms, all right, uh, which sound a bit negative, although there's nothing negative about God. It's just truth or error. The Bible knows no concept of negative and positive in the Scriptures. Uh, but they accurately, truthfully describe God's character. But I've chosen those words not just because they're implied by the text, but also because they torpedo the politically correct concept of God that many people in our culture have embraced. So let's look at these as we go through them. First of all, God is exclusive. Verse 1. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, the Philistines occupied five major cities along the Mediterranean coast of southern Israel. Uh, Ashdod was one of their main cities, and it was in the heart of Philistine country. So they have now brought the ark into the very heart of their territory. Now, when I say God is exclusive, what do I mean? Well, the Ark of God that the Philistines uh, now had in their possession represented the covenant that God made with Israel, his chosen people, which is why it was called the Ark of the Covenant, okay? But this covenant was an exclusive agreement that God made with the Jewish people at Sinai. Remember Mount Sinai when he brought them out of Egypt? Stood them at the base of Mount Sinai and proposed a covenant with them that if they would receive God as their God, obey him and honor him with their lives, keeping all the terms of the covenant which he would give to Moses on top of Sinai, then God promised to be their God to watch over them and bless them above any other people on the face of the earth. But guys, this covenant with all of its blessings and benefits was never intended for unbelievers. It was only intended for believers who were the covenant people of God. Very important point that you understand that. See, when the Philistines captured the ark, they brought it back to their land. Now, they were pagans. And the way the pagans thought was this. Objects contain power. So they were looking now at the ark as a power source. They knew that Israel had come out of Egypt and God had struck the Egyptians with numerous plagues. They still remembered that. We read about that in chapter 4. And so now they have what they think was the source of Israel's power. This gold box, okay, called the Ark of the Covenant rectangular box overlaid with gold and they thought look we're going to bring it over here because it's going to give us power now we'll add it to our gods and we'll have even more power 
See, what they did not realize, because they were pagans, the power of the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the box. It wasn't the box itself, as we've already talked about. It was that it represented the covenant God made with Israel. What was this covenant? It was a covenant whereby the children of Israel had promised to honor God with their lives and obey all that he had said. Now, they weren't doing that. See, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you, protect you, and so on. But they had turned their backs on God, got into immorality, idolatry. And so God basically let the Philistines take victory over them. But the Philistines listened to me. When the Philistines brought the Ark of the Covenant into their land, expecting it to bless them, they were usurping the covenant that God had made with Israel. A covenant based on commitment, right? And in essence, they were saying, look, this thing is going to be a blessing to us, even though there was no commitment. They were not the covenant people of God. They had not promised to make the God of Israel their God exclusively and obey all that he had said. And this was one of the reasons that God uh, starts to judge them in the text. And do you realize how many people in our country who are doing this very thing, they really haven't made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Not really. They have not entered into the new covenant with him, which is to receive him as their Lord and Savior, to obey what he has said, to honor him with their lives. Instead, they offer him lift service, don't they? And they try to benefit from a relationship with God they really don't have. A relationship that is only legitimate if it's based on commitment and obedience. Didn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, to a group of would-be disciples, because there was always people following Jesus, claiming to be his disciples. Many that were following him to see what they could get from him, not because they really loved him and wanted to honor him with their life. And at one point, the Lord turned to a whole group of these would-be disciples and said, look, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? implying that a relationship with him, with Jesus Christ, is only legitimate if it's rooted in commitment and obedience. I mean, Jesus said, if you love me, if you know me, keep my commandments. And that's the idea. It's a lot of people who are not really living for the Lord, yet are trying to benefit off of some relationship with him they don't really have, as if they were also a part of his covenant people. They're the spiritual equivalent of the Philistines. And God will judge them if they don't repent and turn their lives over to Jesus Christ in truth. Now, turn to Psalm 50. The reason I have chosen these terms, which on the face of it, again, will kind of rock the boat for those who are comfortable in thinking they know God, but they really don't. We want to make them a little uncomfortable. I think it was Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher, who said he believed it was his ministry to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, okay? Well, I try to comfort the afflicted. Today I'm going to afflict the comfortable a little bit, so bear with me. But people have this concept of God as if all he is is love and grace and just even to the point where some people believe nobody ever goes to hell because God is too loving. I like to read them passages like Psalm 50, okay? Let's pick it up in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, the wicked are some believers, okay? What right... Have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought 
that I was altogether like you. In other words, because I haven't acted quickly and brought judgment, you think I'm on your side. He said, if I agree with your immoral ways of living. He said, but I will rebuke you and set them, all your sins and transgressions, in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest, listen, I tear you in pieces and there is none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. And God is being very specific here. Right, this is a, a great passage to kind of cause people to realize, look, God's not playing games. And if I'm playing games, if I'm pretending to know him and have a relationship with him, but my life is being lived in a way contrary to everything I claim I believe about God, well, you know what? God is saying to them, I am not playing games and if you think you can pretend to belong to me, to be one of my covenant people, where you throw my word around and you claim my promises, you are sadly mistaken. If your life is being lived in rebellion to everything I've said, why do you think you belong to me? Is what God is saying. Okay? See, God will not tolerate those who are playing games. And that brings us to our second point. God is intolerant. Okay? Verse 2. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house or the temple of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it up in its place again. It's very sad when you have to help your God off the ground <laughs> and set it on its little perch again. You know, maybe it's time to change gods. I don't know. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time, guys, his head was snapped off in his little thin hands because he was a fish god. Okay, got a little flipper hands, right? So this time the Lord knocks him on the ground, snaps his head off, snaps his little hands off, which means he not only have to set him back on his pedestal, they have to glue his head and his hands back on. It's even sadder when you got to glue your god's head back on his body and glue his hands back on his body, all right? Verse 5, therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Again, Dagon was a half-man, half-fish god. He was probably the chief god in the Philistine pantheon of gods, thought to have been associated with fertility. Uh, the son of Baal, who we read about quite a bit in the scriptures, also a god of fertility. In an agrarian culture like theirs, uh, fertility was very important. Uh, multiplying animals growing crops, that kind of thing. So they had these nature gods, these uh, fertility gods and goddesses that they would look to to bless their crops, to, to cause their animals to multiply and so on, as well as their children or their families. But uh, here we see something important, guys. We see how the Philistines were trying to listen, trying to add the true and living God to their current system of false worship. However, look at how God dealt with their attempts to do this. He knocked their God to the ground as a statement to these pagans that the God of Israel, who is the true and living God, will not stand next to any other God. He is the only God who is true, and all other gods must fall to the ground before him. He will not share his glory with another. Look, once again, God will not simply allow us to add him to our lives and all the other things that we worship and serve. 
And guys, make no mistake about it, people in our country worship many different gods. The God of power, the God of sex, the God of greed, the God of materialism, etc. You see, all idolatry starts in the heart with an idea, a desire, an ambition, or some other drive that then becomes the driving passion, or as somebody else has said, the master passion of their life. What is the master passion of a person's life? Well, it's what drives them. It's what they live for. It's what gets them up in the morning, out the door. Whatever that thing is, that ambition, that desire, that is your master passion. That is your God. Whatever God it is, whether it's God of power, so that people have corporate power, political power, underworld power, power is a big thing. I mean, you have gods in the ancient world that were gods of power, like in the Greek culture, Zeus and so on. Now, it's true that people in America don't think of themselves as idolaters because they don't physically bow down and worship before a statue or an image. And it's true that in the ancient cultures, like the one we're reading about today, the pagans took it to the next level. They had these concepts. They worshiped power. They worshiped materialism. They worshiped fertility. And then they would make for themselves a carved image of wood, stone, precious metal, gold, silver, which they would then bow down to that physically represented this God that they worshipped. But listen to me. A person doesn't have to take it to that level to be an idolater. You don't have to physically. You know, if you're a person who worships power, okay, and in your life it's corporate power, you want to have a thriving business, you want to be a CEO or whatever it might be, they don't necessarily fashion out for themselves an idol to then bow down physically and worship before this thing to honor or worship this God or this deity. But they worship the idea. Uh, their life is driven with a desire to, you know, just be in, engrossed in this obsession, this passion of theirs, which again becomes the driving force in their life. Look, there are many who worship a number of different gods in our culture. And many of these same people try to add the true God to their lives. And they don't have a problem with this. They absolutely don't understand what the problem is, okay? They say, look, I can worship God and still love the world and still pursue the things of the world and, and all of this stuff that the world is offering, even though the Bible says all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's all of the devil trying to get your eyes off of God. And Jesus said, look, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon, which is money, but money buys everything else, so you can't serve God in the world, basically. You can't serve God and the world. You've got to serve God or the world. That's what Joshua said to the people of Israel back in his day. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Either the God who brought you out of Egypt or the gods of the Canaanites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You've got to choose. Many people are not choosing. They're trying to incorporate God into their life. And God says, I will not tolerate that. I will not tolerate a commitment to any other God in your life, I must be your first love, your supreme God. I must be the God that you live for and honor with your life. I'm not going to share you with another God, another passion in your heart. Just as a wife or a husband should be intolerant of any other person that would try to come between them, any person that would compete for the love that they have for each other, listen, a love that is rooted in commitment through marriage, it's totally legitimate to not tolerate anyone who would try to come between you and your spouse. And God is the same way. He demands exclusivity from us in our relationship with him. He doesn't want us loving him but dating some other guy. Okay? 
any more than your wife would like it if you were married to her but dating or seeing some other woman or women. God is a jealous God. And God says, look, when I redeemed you, I redeemed you for myself. We entered into a covenant, he told Israel. You mean, I was going to be exclusive to you. You were going to be exclusive to me. Because we had this agreement. We had this solemn vow between us, this covenant. God demands an exclusive relationship with us. Or to put it another way, he is absolutely intolerant of any other gods in our lives. Turn to Exodus 20. Uh, This is the first commandment of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. Now Moses is up on Sinai, getting the terms of the covenant from God. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I've redeemed you. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods, what? Before me. Now, in saying that, God is not saying, Look, as long as you put me at the front of the line, you can have as many gods as you want behind me. No, he's not saying that. The Hebrew is that you shall have no other gods before me in the sense you shall not add any other gods to your life i am to be your first love your your consuming passion and so on is what god is saying when we come to jesus all gods in our lives have to fall as dagon fell in the presence of a holy god they have to fall they cannot compete with god that he has to be our one and only master passion the god we worship He alone is our God. He alone is the one we are to worship and adore. So, guys, number one, we learn about God from this passage. First of all, God is exclusive. Secondly, God is intolerant. And thirdly, God is judicial. Verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashtod. Keep that in mind. That's what I've named this message. The heavy hand of God. The hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God, of the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us in Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God, the God of Israel, be carried away to Gath, another main city of the Philistines. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. And so it was that after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city, the city of Gath. And God struck it with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, with tumors that broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Now, the people of Ekron were nobody's fools, all right? They had heard what was going on in Ashdod and then later Gath. So when they found out they're going to ship the thing over to their city, they met him by the gate and said, don't even think about it. Are you out of your minds? Are you looking to kill us now? So they said in verse 11, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, what exactly was this plague? 
that the Lord struck the Philistines with? Well, we're not really told for sure. Uh, we learn from chapter 6 that along with the tumors, uh, God sent rats into the cities where the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And uh, since the King James Version uses the word emrods for tumors, some commentators think that the tumors were actually hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids. That's kind of a common interpretation. Now listen, I don't want to be insensitive. Uh, hemorrhoids can be very painful. I'm not a doctor. I don't think they're life-threatening, though. But here you have a combination of rats and tumors, which are deadly. A lot of people dying. Because of it, many believe that the Lord struck the Philistines with bubonic plague. Could be. All we really know about this plague, whatever it was, it was a judgment of God upon the Philistines. In this third point, I said that God is a judicial God. And by that I mean that he is the righteous judge of all the earth, as Abraham called him in Genesis 18. And as such, he has to punish sin and sinners. This is a concept that many people in our culture today do not believe. That God is, I mean, they'll believe God's a God of love. But when you try to talk to them about God being a God of judgment, they bristle at that. They don't want to accept that. Because you know what it is? They don't want to accept that God judges sin because then they'd have to get their lives right with God. So it's just easier for me to write off God. No, he's not a judging God. He's a loving God. In fact, some people say he's so loving he never sends. He doesn't send anybody to hell. Just everyone gets into heaven at the end. Listen to me. A good judge, a righteous judge, has to punish crime. He can't just say, well, let's just forget it. He's got to punish crime. All sin is a crime against God. And therefore, God has to punish sin if he's going to be a righteous God. Ultimately, he will punish sinners in hell. That's true. But since God is also a God of love, well, he often brings judgment into people's lives right now on the earth, as he did with the Philistines. Listen to me. As an act of mercy. say, I don't get that. Hang on. You'll see it in a moment. All right? By God judging the Philistines, yes, okay, he was proving to them. Don't forget, these were pagans. They had no idea who the God of Israel really was. They called him gods, plural. They were polytheists, okay? They had no idea who this God really was. They had no idea how holy, how righteous, and how just a God he really was. And so when they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which in many ways represented God's presence, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into their land and treated it like any idol, like any object that had power, they diminished the God of Israel. And yes, God was teaching them a lesson, a very severe lesson, about who he was to these pagans. But guys, listen, I believe he did it to a large degree to enlighten them, put the fear of God in them, and ultimately to save them. I believe that. You know, the prophet Habakkuk said, O Lord, in judgment remember mercy. In judgment, remember mercy. Because God was about to judge Israel because they had become very apostate, immoral, idolatrous. And God had revealed to Habakkuk. Habakkuk said, Lord, I, I pray and I pray. He's a prophet, right? He's a leader, a spiritual leader. I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying. And Lord, you're not even answering. I'm not even sure you're even listening to me. Nothing is changing. The people are getting worse and worse. And God spoke to Habakkuk and said, Habakkuk, just because you don't see me working 
doesn't mean I am not working. In fact, I am doing something that if you even knew of it, your ears would tingle for the magnitude. And tingle not in a good way, as we have said, but if somebody takes their hands and goes, bam, up against your side of your head and both sides of your ears, your ears ring, it's a bad thing, right? God was about ready to judge his people. That's what God was saying. And what did Habakkuk say? He said, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. What, what does that mean? I believe the prophet was saying, Lord, don't destroy us in judgment, but use your judgment to break us of our sin and rebellion against you. And listen, cause it to turn us as a nation back to you. There is such, some judgments that are final. And there are some judgments that are merciful. Where God uses them to not destroy a people, but to get their attention. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure, shouts in our pain. If we become so dull of hearing as a nation, which we have become, that God can no longer whisper conviction into our heart, he's got to shout it. And he'll do that through pain. National calamity. And we're seeing it already happening. But listen, sometimes the Lord has to bring a measure of judgment into our lives or upon our nation, again, not to destroy, but to heal. There's a verse that I, you should turn to it. Isaiah 19, verse 22. I say you should turn to it because I have it highlighted in my Bible. Because... It demonstrates this very point we are talking about. Now, Egypt was the perennial enemies of Israel. They were unbelievers, and yet God loved them. God loved, as he does love all unbelievers. Now, listen to what he said in Isaiah 19, verse 22. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. What is God saying? Sometimes I have to hurt to heal. As David said, Lord, it was good for me to have been afflicted. I have learned to keep your word. Sometimes, guys, God brings judgment, not as an act of vengeance, but as an act of mercy. As an act of mercy. Listen, verse 12, 1 Samuel 5, And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, listen, and the cry of the city went up to what? Heaven. Listen to me. It's better if the pain of our cries goes up to heaven instead of up from hell. In other words, it's better if God sends some pain into our lives now while we're still living upon the earth to break us of our sins and thereby save us from an eternity of pain and suffering in hell. And so when he does that, when he brings pain into our lives right now, it always has an eternal perspective attached to it. And in that regard, guys, it is truly an act of God's mercy and love being demonstrated. The problem today, guys, is that many people in our culture have become so jaded by all the immorality, all the sin going on around us. I mean, boy, it's everywhere, isn't it? Our country has become so degenerate, so immoral, the sitcoms are loaded with the most base, godless storylines and humor. You mean, you, you, as a Christian, you can't watch any of it. It just reflects where our culture is at. And because sin is so rampant and immorality is so pervasive in our culture, many people think that sin's no longer a big deal, if they even think of it as sin. 
Today, you, know, you talk about sin, oh, they laugh. The world laughs at us. We sound like archaic nutjobs. They don't take sin seriously anymore, most people. And here's where they make a fatal mistake. They don't think it's a big deal to God anymore either. Oh, maybe murder and rape and robbing banks, but certainly not lying, coveting, or even things like fornication, sex between unmarried people, adultery, sex between married people, or homosexuality. Turn to Revelation 21, verse 8. Here's another verse to show people who think that only the worst in society go to hell. Revelation 21, verse 8. These are our list of some of the folks that wind up in hell. The cowardly, it's interesting, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. Up until that point, we're going, yeah, I can see that. And what? All liars. Oops, that hurts. That's a little unnerving. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, the lake of fire, hell. See, guys, because God doesn't rain fire down from heaven every time someone sins against him, well, people have gotten the idea that God really doesn't care about how they live down here on the earth. Again, they haven't read the scriptures. They haven't read Psalm 7, verses 11 to 13, which says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, if the wicked don't repent, he will sharpen his sword he bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. You can read the rest on your own. What God is saying is, look, just because I don't judge you immediately for the sin in your life doesn't mean your sin doesn't make me angry with you. But I love you. But if you don't repent, I'm going to have to judge you, is the idea. You know, the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, made this statement. He said, and I quote, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are a new, like rotten boards. Okay, think of this as rotten boards, you know. People are walking over hell as if on rotten boards. And there are, are innumerable places in this covering, so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The wrath of God burns against them. What is he saying? He's saying that men are basically playing with fire. They're walking through life in sin, not realizing that at any moment their life could be snuffed out. They could die of a heart attack. They could die of a car accident. Of course, not in Edward's day, but, you know. James put it this way. Tomorrow was not promised to anybody. Our, our life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. At any time, a person's life could be ended. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, they will then face an eternity of suffering and torment in hell. They don't realize they're walking over the fires of hell as an unbeliever. The wrath of God is abiding on them. They need Jesus Christ to save them, deliver them from that fate. Look, right now, God is restraining his wrath. Listen by his great love and mercy. Remember what Peter said? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God's very patient. All right? He doesn't want to see people go to hell. He's giving them time to repent. So his anger is being restrained. And yet the anger of God against sin is growing day by day. 
kind of like a volcano that's building up pressure. One day that volcano is going to erupt. Same is true with God's wrath. One day his wrath against sin will no longer be restrained. Guys, listen, it will then be released. Released. Turn to Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26, I'll read it to you out of the NLT. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, okay, maybe you came here today and didn't know any of this stuff, but now I've given you a knowledge of the truth, that God is a loving God, but He's a holy and righteous God who must punish sin. If you leave here today and do nothing about that, the Bible says right here, there's nothing left God can do for you. There's, there's no longer any sacrifice. There's nothing God can do that will save you. You've heard the truth. You've rejected the truth. And now all that waits is a terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. In other words, all that's left is hell. And in Revelation 14, verse 10, God talks about hell and those who go there, that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Hell is not temporary, it's eternal. And once you go there, there's no appeal process. There's no retrying the case. You're there forever. Now, most people comfort themselves with the knowledge that God is love. You've heard it. Well, you know, you preachers, you talk about hell. But I believe God is love. And because God's a God of love, he may send mass murderers to hell. He may send terrorists like ISIS to hell but he certainly wouldn't send a good person like me to hell. And I was like to say to him, who told you you were a good person? <laughs> well, did God tell you you were a good person? Did you read that in the Bible? In fact, in Proverbs 20, verse 6, God says pretty much everyone thinks they're a good person. Here's the problem. People define goodness this way. Because I'm not as bad as my drunken, drug-taken neighbor, I'm a good person. God says, no, no, your neighbor is not the standard. My son's the standard. He's perfect. Stand next to Jesus. How you doing now? Okay, how good are you? Well, not very good, Lord. That's the whole point. I define goodness as moral perfection. That's why God says to the Apostle Paul, there is none good. There is none good. All have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. And the only payment for sin is eternal punishment in hell. But, I love that, but there's a way out. God's offering a gift called the gift of eternal life. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Guys, let me say it again. If you're here this morning thinking, Ah, God's a God of love. He won't send me to hell. I'm a good person. Can I just say to you that God's love can't save you? God's love will not save you. God's love has never saved anybody. What God's love has done is provide a way by which, by which we might be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's his part. He did his part. What's our part? To believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our living Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we escape the punishment of hell. Look, we're done. Let me just summarize quickly. First of all, God is exclusive, not inclusive. Jesus said, no one gets to heaven except through me. Heaven is an exclusive, I hate to say club. It's a membership thing, okay? You know, 
as the old tagline on some credit card, membership has privileges. Okay? To be in heaven, you have to be a member. Member of what? Member of the body of Christ. God's exclusive. Here's the beautiful thing about it, though. He's inviting everybody to be a member. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest, Jesus said. God desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So if, yeah, heaven's exclusive, the beautiful thing about it is it's open to anybody who wants to belong. Just receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. So God is exclusive, not inclusive. Number two, God is intolerant, not tolerant. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said there are many roads, or in other words, many religions that people are involved in that they think are going to bring them to heaven. Jesus says they actually will take them to hell. Those roads lead to destruction. There's only one way that will get you to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't get to heaven unless you come through me. So Jesus is very intolerant, isn't he? Of course, people don't like that. Well, why is Jesus the only way? How come there can't be other ways? I believe all roads lead to heaven. Well, he didn't say that. He said all roads lead to the same place that is in heaven. It's hell, okay? Well, I don't think it's fair. Look, if God would have said there are 100 ways that lead to heaven, somebody would have said, why isn't there 101? It never ends, okay? I'm just glad he's made a way, okay? He didn't have to do anything. He could have said, you blew it, too bad. I'm going to go over to the Andromeda galaxy and... Create another little earth, and we'll tr I'll try again with these folks. Maybe they won't blow it. You made your bed lie in it now. Thank God he didn't say that. So God is intolerant, okay, of any other way that claims to get you to heaven except through the way he has provided his son. And thirdly, God is judicial. He is a just judge, and he has to punish sin. But he is also a loving God who Paul said, sent his son Jesus Christ to the earth, him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, to die on the cross in our place, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. What a great deal. Jesus takes all my sins upon his cross and dies in my place. And, I, and when I believe in him, he gives to me his righteousness. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me anymore. He sees Jesus. And Jesus is perfect. The righteousness that gets us into heaven is not a righteousness that we can manufacture. It is the righteousness, Paul said, that comes from God by faith. You believe in Jesus. He gives you his righteousness. Our good deeds, you should read Isaiah 64, 6, are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Don't wrap yourself in your good works. I think you're going to stand before God someday and hear him say, oh, wow, well, I've been really impressed by all those good works. They're like filthy, defiled rags. You need the pure robes of Jesus' righteousness, which comes by faith. Amen? Amen? Now, we're done, but listen to this. For those of you who are believers, let me just say this. God promised his people Israel that he would protect them, watch over them, give them victory over their enemies. So what's going on here? He let the Philistines conquer them. That's because even though they were the covenant people of God, they walked away from him. And when we walk away from God, God says, well, uh, I can't protect you. I can't help you if you're going to walk away from me. And here's, here's what's going on. There's a lot of Christians who have kind of drifted from God. 
and where they once had victory over the enemies in their life, cigarettes and, and uh, drugs and alcohol and pornography, now they are seeing those things rise up again and take them captive. Just like God allowed the Philistines to begin to conquer over his people. You need to repent. Get on your face before God. Repent of your sins. Get your life right with him. That he might bring you back into that close fellowship. Into a place where he can watch over you, protect you, provide for you, and bless you. Because if we walk away from God, God says, well, I'm going to be right here when you want to come back. But I can't help you if you're going to get into the world. So what I'm going to do is let the world beat you up good and hard. Then you come back and you're ready to really walk with me. And God does that. So may God give us grace to apply these lessons into our lives and to walk in the Spirit, walk in obedience, walk in a way that honors our God through our lives and through all we do. Father, we thank you for your lessons in your word. You said that these things were written beforehand for our learning. So the stories in the Old Testament, real stories, real historical events, were put here in your word to teach us what not to do or how we are to live. Lord, a wise man or woman learns from the mistakes others have made, learns from those mistakes without having to commit those same sins and things themselves. The way of the transgressor is hard. We don't want to learn, Lord, hard lessons by, having, by messing up and disobeying you. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in obedience, to learn from the mistakes of others that we don't make those same mistakes ourselves. Lord, we thank you. Father, we ask all these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.